Well, let me add my good morning to everybody here, everybody watching online. And would we all open up our Bibles together to Luke chapter 1. In just a few moments, that's where we'll be setting out from for our new Christmas sermon series. But just a couple things up front. Uh, now as we stand, as hard as it is to believe that it's already December 13th, um, just a couple of reminders that today at 5 o'clock we are having our annual congregational meeting. It is the first time in Grace Church history that it is not going to be in this room, but it's going to be online. It's going to be on Zoom. That email will be sent out today at 1 o'clock with the agenda and with uh, the Zoom link. Um, all are welcome to attend that. Uh, members are expected to attend that, and uh, as we go through some of those really important items, uh, namely, and I'd say primarily, um, hearing from and voting on new elders that will be starting in 2021 to be the ones God has called and equipped to shepherd and lead this congregation, um, as well as voting on and um, reviewing the budget heading into next year. Um, and then we will also be reviewing the annual report that we put out each year um, and take some time to reflect on that. And if there's ever a year to reflect uh, on what God has done, I think it's in 2020, and I'm looking forward to even to that. So 5 o'clock today. Um, and then Christmas Eve services, uh, we announced last week the registration was going to open. They failed in about 24 hours, uh, that both services are um, currently full, but there is a wait list, an opportunity to sign on a wait list um, that uh, as spots open up, we'll be able to move people into. And so we will just periodically, for those who have registered, be reminding you that knowing that it's 2020 and plans change on a dime, uh, where maybe you registered and thought you were able to go to one of those services and then find that now you won't be able to. Uh, if that does happen, we just ask that you remember to cancel your registration so that we can move uh, people on the wait list. In. Um, and we are still planning weather permitting, uh, on December 23rd to do an outdoor service. That's going to be different from Christmas Eve, but I think it'll be very special in its own right. Uh, and that registration will not be required. That'll be open to all uh, on December 23rd at 6th. I say weather permitting because it's, there's some rumors that a storm is coming this week, and we don't really know kind of what will look like by next week. So, uh, But we, at this point, are still looking forward to that. Well, Christmas... I've always been fascinated by, um, in the sense that um, it's unique from the rest of the holidays on our calendar because it's never just a day, it's an entire season that leads up to the day, right? So other holidays that we celebrate uh, get a day attached to it. Maybe some get a weekend, the way we talk about Memorial Day weekend and Labor Day weekend. Major holidays might even get the focus of an entire week, like Easter and Holy Week that leads up to it. But when it comes to Christmas, it's a season. And there are a lot of reasons for that, but I think in the church we might even need to admit that we have been influenced by the culture a little bit here uh, due to the fact that we give Jesus' death and resurrection a week and we give his birth like six weeks. But we can shake that feeling of guilt for a moment because here's the point. One of the primary signs that it's Christmas season is the change in music. It's the cue that Christmas season has arrived. I think it's fair to say that Christmas is the only holiday that has its own soundtrack that comes along with it, right? It just is universally known, seemingly, that when Christmas season comes, the music changes. And I have a confession to make where um, someone had asked me recently, 
What's an example of a major Christian doctrine or belief that you changed your mind on since becoming a pastor? It's actually a great question. Um, and, you know, just thinking about when's the last time I changed my mind on something that's significant since becoming a pastor entering into ministry? Uh, there are some serious discussions we could have along that line, not right now, but my not so serious answer for right now is that I have changed my belief on when it is acceptable to begin listening to Christmas music. <laughs> okay, so I used to be a devout post Thanksgiving believer. If listening to Christmas music before Thanksgiving was not a sin, I felt it was as close to being a sin as you can get without actually sinning. And I have to admit, I've changed. I'm a changed man. I don't know, somewhere between kid three and four, I, you know, I don't know when it happened in our house, but in our house, once the calendar hits November, we're in. We're in on the Christmas music, and I've tried to hide it for a while, but I am ashamed no longer. I'm a November 1st convert when it comes to Christmas music, because I love it, and we love it. And here's the thing. People stop caring about their general preference in music around Christmas time, about their preferred genre or even quality, and grown men and women, including myself, will gladly start singing songs that are silly and about fictional characters with no shame. And then even on a more serious level, I think someone should do a deep dive study on this if it hasn't been done already, but non-Christians will gladly listen to and even sing Christ-exalting songs even though they themselves do not exalt Christ. So you can just look at the top 10 Christmas albums sold of all time. Do you know the list of the top 10 Christmas albums that have been sold of all time? You know who's number one? Elvis. 1957. Number two on the list, Kenny G, 1994. Anybody want to admit having that floating around the home? Number three, Nat King Cole, classic, 1960. Okay, I need to admit something here. Numbers four and five, I had not heard of them before this list. The Mannheim Steamroller. The year was 1988, which was that happened to be the year I was born. So there's your annual reminder that I am, in fact, that young. Number six, Josh Groban, 2007. Mariah Carey coming in, 1994, number seven. And then Celine Dion, Barbara Streisand, Johnny Mathis, eight through ten. All right, so if you want more recent history, what are the top 10 Christmas albums of just the 2010s? Number one, Susan Boyle. Number two, Michael Blue Blay. Number three, Kelly Clarkson. And then, okay, numbers four through 10 is all the same group who put out a Christmas album every year. They have figured it out. They're just cashing in on all of us because they come out with a new album every year, the acapella group, Pentatonics, just taking it to the bank. They figured it out. We will keep buying it every year. But here's the thing. Of all the groups and people I just mentioned, I don't know if any, maybe one, are actually Christians. But it doesn't matter because they will sing it because people will listen to it and more importantly, buy it. And so at this point, I hope you're asking, um, okay, pastor, are you actually going to preach a sermon this morning? Yes. Here's the point. Christmas songs did not begin with Elvis and Nat King Cole. They play a central role in the biblical Christmas narrative. Specifically, the Gospel of Luke records four songs in its opening chapters. 
Two of those songs are leading up to the birth of Christ. The third comes the night of the birth. And then the fourth comes in the days following the birth of Jesus. So this morning, we begin a four-week sermon series called Songs of Christmas. The first will be, this morning, Mary's song. Next week will be Zechariah's song. By the way, that will be Pastor Joe preaching his first sermon here at Grace Church. So there's your preview. Make sure to register tomorrow for next week. The third song will be the angels' song that we will look at on Christmas Eve. And then the fourth, and I think most overlooked, song of Christmas, Simeon's song, will be the Sunday after Christmas following the birth of Christ. So, we already talked about the Christmas songs that were bought the most over the last 75 years, but this series will spotlight the songs of Christmas where the lyrics have been read and studied for 2,000 years. This is the original Christmas playlist. And they're not just meant to get you in the mood for Christmas. They reveal the truth of Christmas. They proclaim something that history has changed. So we are going to read the song up front, Luke 1, 46 to 56. May I ask that you stand in honor of this being a song. I promise I won't sing it. But you can follow along in your Bible or on the screen as I read. Verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Thank you. You may have a seat. Every popular song, your favorite Christmas song, likely has a story behind it as to why it was written. My favorite, or one of my favorites, is I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, written by Henry Longfellow, who wrote it while he was at the bedside of his son, who was wounded during the Civil War. And he wrote it because as he was sitting here next to his son, wondering if his son's going to live, he began to hear bells ringing on the street outside, outside a nearby ch church. Every song has a story behind it, and the original songs of Christmas here in Luke 1 are no different. Mary's song, it's known as the Magnificat. It's powerful in and of itself, as we'll see, but its deepness, I think, uh, goes uh, beyond even the lyrics when you understand the backstory. And I know many, if not all of you listening and in this room, understand and have heard the story a lot of times, and yet I think being reminded of it is needed every year. Mary was a young, Middle Eastern Jewish woman who was likely in the range of 13 to 15 years old. She was betrothed to a man from the tribe of Judah named Joseph. 
And a betrothal, an ancient Jewish practice, was an engagement that was legally binding, meaning you could not break it without getting a divorce, even though you were not yet married. And God sent an angel to Mary to proclaim that she had found favor with God, and she's going to conceive a son in her womb. And Mary, understandably, asks, how? How is this going to happen? Since she was a virgin, and the angel says that the Holy Spirit will overshadow you, for this will be the Son of God. Just as the Holy Spirit hovered over the world in Genesis chapter 1 when it was empty and void and brought about life in creation, so now the Holy Spirit once again hovers over Mary's womb in Luke chapter 1 when it was empty and void and brings about life, this time the Word becoming flesh. And the angel tells Mary that her older relative Elizabeth is also six months pregnant with a son. So Mary says what I think is one of the most powerful lines in the Bible, and I don't say that lightly, in response to the angel says this, I'm a servant of the Lord, let it be according to your word. And she goes from her hometown to visit Elizabeth. Elizabeth, as you saw in the kids' video earlier, sees Mary her own son in the womb leaps, and Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit at that moment and knows that Mary is carrying what Elizabeth calls the mother of her Lord, or that Mary is the mother of her Lord. And Mary is blessed because she believed that which was spoken to her, and because of that, Mary sings. And I would put these 10 verses of Mary's song up against any 10 verses in the Bible that plunge you deep into the character and nature of who God is. Her opening line, my soul magnifies the Lord. That's where the title Magnificat comes from. My soul magnifies the Lord, glorifies the Lord, explodes in worship. Why? Mary sings about three aspects of God's character which we would do well to dwell upon in an Advent season because they provide her hope and joy in the midst of uncertainty. Number one, Mary magnifies the Lord because he is the God who is mindful. He's the God who is mindful. My soul magnifies the Lord because he has looked upon. He has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Mary is overwhelmed by something here. Overwhelmed by something that we, I think, all too often do not get overwhelmed by, if we're honest. And it's the fact that the God of the universe is mindful of her. The reason why this stuns Mary, I think, is twofold. First, there is no being higher than God. And second, in her mind, there is no one more ordinary than her. And so she explodes because he, the God who created all things, is mindful of me. It reminds me of another song in the Bible, Psalm chapter 8, when King David says, quote, when I look at your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? Church, can I ask you a question? How often do you have these moments? Moments in our ordinary days where we are confronted with the truth 
that there is a God, that he is there, that he created all things, and he's mindful of you. Ordinary moments that lead to worship. David was walking, and you know what he did? He looked at the sky, and he exploded in worship. That's all it took. Because in that moment, it hits him that, that the, the question of who, who am I? Who, who am I that he would be mindful of me? And so I want to propose a couple reasons why this does not happen to us nearly as often as it could nor should. One is that we're always in a hurry. We are always hurrying from one thing to the next, not even in our schedules, but in our minds. I, one thing, I, am, I, I think about this all the time because it happens to me all the time. Where when I am doing something, my mind is already going to the, the next thing I have to do after that thing I'm doing. But then here's the thing. I get to that next thing, and then I think about what's after that. And I'm always at the next place than where I am currently. I'm hurrying. My mind's racing. I rarely take time to just to stop, to consider, to look in the ordinary moments of our days to be mindful of God, that he is mindful of us. Um, so in our home, I do the bedtime routine with the kids, all right? So I'm, especially the older two, they are in my domain at bedtime, all right? And I have figured this routine down. Boom, boom, boom. Every night, the same thing, right? Get through it, get done. And then I move on and think to what's next, hurrying in my mind of what I need to do before I go to bed. But occasionally, and usually it's because I'm forced to for some reason that one is not falling asleep yet, or I, I find myself looking at a kid sleeping. There are a few things I find that overwhelm me more than watching a young child sleep. I don't even know what to explain it. And it's, it's a reminder to me, man, these, these moments that we're missing, because we're always hurrying, we're always thinking, we're always trying to move on. What would happen if we hurried less? I bet we would worship more. Take a moment and look at the sky for a minute before going into your office building or before going into class. I don't think... Just the thought of just taking a, a fresh, a deep breath of air, cold air in the winter months, and what that just does to you in that moment. I don't think that's mystical. I don't think I'm, I'm talking about a, a mystic version of Christianity. I think I'm talking about worship. When you consider the God who is there, who is mindful of you, and maybe you can vow with me over these next couple of weeks, can we hurry a little less? Can we force ourselves to and see what God does in that moment and in those moments to orient ourselves towards him? Another reason why I think this is hard for us is because if we're honest, we have such a low view of ourselves and we don't allow ourselves to affirm that God really is mindful of us and he enjoys it. What often gets lost in the story of Mary is how difficult of a spot this pregnancy put Mary in in relation to her family and culture. Right? So are you with me here where sometimes we think about this moment where she's told she's pregnant and then she just proceeds to go on this joyous nine-month journey of pregnancy? Where it's just this like, oh, like this, again, become a mystical, like this is so easy and awesome, I'm carrying God's son and just kind of getting to that night where she gives birth in a starry sky, like wasn't that beautiful? But we know that's not true. We know from Matthew's account that Joseph, 
upon being told by Mary that she is pregnant, did not get excited. He did not give her a hug and pick her up and spin around in a circle and say, this is amazing, you're pregnant, praise God. Wasn't his response. His first response was, you cheated. You sinned. And he resolved, Matthew wrote, to get a divorce. Sure, he, he would do it quietly to try and save you know, some namesake for her, but his first reaction, I'm out. Here's a question. Do you think Mary got any support from her family or friends? Do you think Mary's own parents believed her when she told her she was pregnant? And that she was still a virgin? Do you think Joseph's parents believed her? My guess is that they were embarrassed, ashamed of what she would bring upon the family name by getting pregnant with another man during her engagement to Joseph. Did anyone believe Mary in her hometown? Can you imagine how difficult it is to see yourself as blessed when everyone else sees you as cursed? Here's what I contend. I don't think Mary simply went to go visit Elizabeth. I think she fled to Elizabeth. Rejected, downcast, struggling. And so when she shows up at Elizabeth's door, wondering if I'm going to get rejected by her too, think about the moment she comes to find that Elizabeth is the first one who believed her that she wasn't damaged goods, that she wasn't defiled, but Elizabeth looks her in the eye and says, Mary, you are blessed because you believed. And that is what unlocks Mary's moment of worship, that God used Elizabeth to speak life into Mary, and she was given permission, maybe for the first time since being told she was pregnant, to lift her eyes and worship, not drop her eyes and self-condemn. She was given permission to see herself as she really was, an ordinary woman who was looked upon by an extraordinary God. So I wonder before we move on, I wonder how many of you in this Advent season need to be given permission to worship, permission to not have such a low view of yourself but instead to see yourself as one who God sees and is mindful of because he loves you, because he enjoys it. And some of you in here this morning, some of you watching online are in Mary's shoes right now. You're struggling to see yourself as valued and affirmed. And others may very well be in Elizabeth's shoes, or you can be if you choose to be, meaning who in your life can God use you to speak life into? And and be the one who gives permission to another to worship, to be reminded of who they are in Christ, to be an encourager. Listen, it took Elizabeth one line. It took one line to just open up the floodgates of worship for Mary. Who in your life, when you look around, could you be used by God to unlock worship in another? 
I think we seldom understand how vital this is in the life of a church community, that when we come and we gather, we're not just coming to receive, but God is, has you walking through these doors and sitting in here to also be a means of encouragement to another. A constant prayer, I ask people to pray, is that as you're walking through these doors, ask God, who can I encourage today? Give me a person to encourage today. Maybe it's one line. What would happen if a church is constantly being used by God in that way? This is the story of Christmas. This is the ordinary mixing with the extraordinary. It's an extraordinary God being mindful of ordinary people. And when that happens, church, it leads to worship, not only in our life, but it shows in the life of Jesus Christ, the ordinary mixing with the extraordinary. Jesus' entry into this world was very ordinary. He grew in the womb over the span of nine to ten months. When he was born, someone had to cut the umbilical cord off Jesus. Jesus went on to nurse off of Mary. Jesus cried when he was hungry and tired. Jesus did ordinary things right from the start. And yet, God took on flesh. The extraordinary happened. And it changed everything. So that's number one. Mary magnifies the Lord because he's the God who is mindful Number two, Mary magnifies the Lord because he's the God who is mighty. He's the God who is mighty. So verses 51 to 53 again. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. Mary is so God-centered in this song. It's amazing. She's exalting him for his greatness, his strength. And so seeing this should prevent us in the church from giving in to the common temptations that we have to either, on one hand, weaken Mary or borderline worship Mary. So on the one hand, the church can often weaken Mary. And you know what I mean by this. Like where the depiction of her is this like, in the Christmas stories, just kind of like naive young woman who God kind of just used to carry the child, but she was weak in of herself, and Joseph just had to come alongside her and, like, carry her along. And that's not what Scripture shows. Scripture shows a strong young woman of faith who, among other things, has the right view of a mighty God who disrupts traditional power structures of the culture around her. It also shows that she knew her Scriptures, she knew her scriptures. She was not quoting the Old Testament directly in her song, but her lyrics show that she was so immersed in the Bible that those redemptive themes just kind of spilled out of her. Many of you know that her song echoes a lot of the same words and topics um, than, uh, compared to Hannah's song in the book of 1 Samuel. Do you remember Hannah? She was ridiculed and ostracized by other women in her day because she was childless. She felt like an outsider amongst her own people, much like Mary must have felt in, like, in her own hometown, except this time for the fact that she was with child. But when Hannah found out she was pregnant, she cried out to the Lord, glorifying him as the one who makes the poor poor and the rich rich, the one who brings low and the one who exalts, and affirming that his adversaries would be crushed. While the poor are not only seen by God, they will be raised up from the dust. Hannah would go on to be the mother of the prophet Samuel. 
who would go on to find and raise up a young shepherd boy named David who would go on to become the king of Israel. So we should not weaken Mary, but also we should not worship Mary. With respect to our Catholic friends and family, the Catholic Church's elevation of Mary as being sinless herself, as being one who is a perpetual virgin, and as someone who should be prayed to is not only unbiblical, but it would go against Mary's own wishes because we see here Mary is centered and focused on God, not herself. So we should not weaken Mary nor worship Mary, but we should honor the faith and obedience of Mary and model her view that rightly sees our God is a God who is mighty. And his mightiness is most displayed in the way he deals with those who think they are mighty in their own eyes. Mary knew her Old Testament history. Mary now rightfully sees herself in the redemptive line, which must have been crazy for her to realize. And she exalts God for doing what God always does throughout Scripture. He brings down the proud. He exalts the humble. He uses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He uses what is weak to shame the strong. Proverbs 3, 7 says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. And what we have seen across history is that it continually repeats itself. In that so often, those who are proud and in power use that power to oppress others. Worldly wisdom without a fear of the Lord leads to oppression. It leads to people in those places that will deploy their power to oppress and marginalize those they can. And so Christ enters the world as a man to empty out those who are full of themselves and to fill those who are empty with himself. Mary understood this. She prophesies this in the ministry of her son, who will turn the world upside down. And he will do it spiritually, yes and amen. But Jesus will also change some things socially, politically, and economically. And he would do so as head over the church, which disrupts power structures as it spreads through the Roman Empire, and as our friend Juan Garcia, who preaches here generally every year, and remember was a sermon he preached here a couple years ago when we were going through the Gospel of Mark, and he named the sermon Growing Down. If you remember this, he said the Christian life is not about growing up, it's about growing down. If anyone will be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. Christ will teach this, but above all, he will model that mightiness in the kingdom of God is measured in units of humility and service. As Paul says, for he did not grasp equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Grace Church, we will only be as effective in being salt and light in this world as we see, along with Mary, that to follow Christ is to grow down, to serve, 
to exalt the lowly, to break down power structures that oppress. Mary magnifies the Lord because he's the God who is mighty. And then last, number three, she magnifies the Lord because he's the God who is merciful. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Listen, if God is mindful and he is mighty but not merciful, that's bad news. But by his grace, he is mindful and he is mighty and he is merciful. And his heart is merciful to free his people from the bondage of sin and darkness. In our church podcast, it's a podcast called Grace Extended. You can get it wherever you get podcasts. There's an episode that's going to be released this week that Pastor Joe and Steve and I recorded um, about the connection between the incarnation of Jesus and suffering in this world. How do those two things go together? The, the meaning of Christmas, God taking on flesh, and, and, and difficulty and uncertainty of suffering. How can we put those two together? So be on the lookout for that this Thursday. But at one point in the podcast, we talked about this word helper. That's all throughout the Bible, including this passage. Specifically, God as our helper, this theme throughout the scripture, and this theme that God always provides what God demands. If God demands that we are holy as he is holy, he provides in himself what he requires in others. He has helped his servant Israel. This is the kind of help Mary refers to when she declares that God, in remembrance of his mercy, has helped his servant Israel. And Mary, just the, quite the theologian Mary here, right? She's connecting the dots in her mind in the song that this baby growing inside her is the ultimate fulfillment to the original promise given to her ancestor Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. When God told Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and listen, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It is through the family line of Abraham that the nation of Israel came. And it's through the nation of Israel that the Messiah has now come. So the Messiah, he came for Mary, yes. He came for Israel, yes. But he also came to fulfill the promise that all the families of the earth shall be blessed through him. Because his arrival is not just for a certain kind of person. It's not for a certain kind of nation. It's for all who would call upon the name of the Lord and believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior and trust in him forevermore. This is Christmas. It's the objective evidence that God remembers. Church, do you know this? That he is for you. Christmas is the evidence that he is for you, not against you. He did not expect you to find your way to him in the darkness, fumbling around till you found him, but he came to you, shining a light into the darkness. And that is good news, especially for those who have come to the end of their rope, where their own pride has been broken, for those who have seen the bottom of the pit of trying to make it for themselves. Pastor Alistair Begg puts it like this, quote, once you've realized that you're hungry for something that this world cannot give you, 
you're ready to find the fullness God offers. Mary's song. It's track number one on the album. Songs of Christmas. Because she magnifies the Lord. She is a living example of how Christmas is a story of the ordinary mixing in with the extraordinary. An ordinary woman giving birth in an ordinary way to an extraordinary baby. And this baby will grow up to, from all appearances, die an ordinary death in the first century, just as another accused and disgraced criminal on a Roman cross, just another Friday in Rome. And yet, this ordinary death would do an extraordinary thing. It would be the death blow to death itself. It would change history forever. It would inaugurate the kingdom of God. It would be the restoration of the cosmos where the mighty is broken down and the lowly is lifted up to the glory of God. The light shone into the darkness, and the darkness shall not overcome it. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you how a 10-verse song can unlock so much worship in our hearts, Lord, that can illuminate who you are, your inmost character and nature, that you are God who is mindful of us. Father, let that never become normal to us, that you're a God who is mighty, who will not be overcome by anyone or anything, and most importantly, that you are a God who is merciful who have made a way when there was no way. And that you, Lord, are calling all those who are hungry to yourself to rest in the fullness that only you can provide. Father, fill our minds, stir our hearts, and let us live for you and you alone. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.